Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, open it to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. We have remaining in this chapter, that as I've mentioned a few times, the great Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Welsh pastor in London in the mid-1900s, described as the most terrible and terrifying chapter in the Bible. And we have the privilege to think about the last three verses as we finish up this chapter before we get into chapter 3 next week. As you're finding 2 Peter chapter 2, as we all know, this week, this Tuesday in particular, we have a very important day in our nation. And as we open up our Bible, we have a far more important eternal truth to consider. So I'm going to pray for one, and I'm going to preach on the other. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your kindness to us as a people. We come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, which your infallible Holy Word tells us is the King of kings and Lord of lords who has been exalted above every authority, both earthly and heavenly. We come to you in his name in the confidence that he is superintending you, our triune God, are superintending all things for the good of your people, and for the ultimate and supreme glory of your name. We know that your word tells us that we should pray and make intercession for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we do that. We pray for the political process that will take place in our country this week. We pray for our presidential and Senate and Congress, congressional elections, and for state and local elections. We pray in all of these that your will be done. Regardless of the outcome, Lord, we know what Peter says to us in his first letter, that we should be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, to the emperor supreme, to governors who are sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is the will of God. And when we live as good citizens like this, even in the midst of very, very imperfect governments, we silence ignorant and foolish people. So help us to live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as your servants. Help us to honor everyone, even those that we disagree with politically. Help us to love the brotherhood. Help us to fear you and honor the emperor. Lord, we take comfort in Paul's words in Romans 13 that says that you, indeed, you alone, institute all authority, regardless of where that authority rests on the spectrum of goodness. So, Lord, be with our nation, we pray. Lord, make us an unusual combination of people who care deeply about our country and about this world and about these days. People that want to do good to the city that we are in as exiles. But yet, as much as we care about that, Lord, let it not seize our hearts and become an idol for us and May we be people that care deeply about now, but long for then, for our true citizenship is not here in this country or in this world, but it is in heaven. Lord, be gracious to us us as a nation. May your will be done. May your name be exalted. And may whatever happens in this coming week, in the coming days, serve in ways that we cannot see from this perspective to advance the gospel in our nation and in this world. 
And Lord, we rest in that. We know that that is the case. And even though you have said this is your will, you call us to be the means by which you bring about your will. So Lord, help us now. And help us as we now turn our attention to this very important text. Tune our hearts into this passage, I pray. And make us more like Jesus. And call unbelievers to faith in Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me read the last three verses of this passage. And this passage presents us with a dilemma that we need to consider. It's the dilemma of the assurance, the security of a believer. In this passage, Peter is finishing up his stark and stinging rebuke of the false teachers that were plaguing the church. He tells the church that they should be aware of these people. He is, he is very clear about the dangers that these false teachers present to the church. And he is assuring believers that these false teachers will be judged. And here in these last three verses, he gives a kind of commentary from the perspective of people that are doing life with these believers. And it's a kind of warning for all of us. So let me read this passage. And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at this text, what it says, and then I want us to consider to zoom out and consider how we might apply this text. So here, here we are, verse 20 of 2 Peter chapter 2. And the context is Peter speaking about the, the state, the spiritual state of these false teachers. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. All right, let's look at this text, and then let's consider this dilemma, and then hopefully let's apply this, this passage to our lives. Notice in this text how Peter describes the experience of these, these false teachers. It seems to be saying that they, that they are saved, that they are true Christians. Notice the description of these false teachers, their spiritual state. He says that they have escaped the defilements of the world. And how do they escape the defilements of the world? Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But even though they've escaped these defilements, apparently, through Christ, they have turned back. And I noticed that I entitled this message, Don't Turn Back, and I wasn't even thinking that this is Fall Back Sunday when time changed. I wasn't trying to confuse you. That's just a spiritual point here, I think, of the passage. Notice that they have, they have fallen away. They've turned back. That's what's happening to these false teachers. He describes them after they have escaped the defilements, that then they are again entangled in them, meaning these defilements, and they're overcome by them. And he says, and this is really a sad commentary, he says the last state is worse than the first. What's he saying there? I think probably there's a few things going on there, but, but I think it's just speaking to the unlikeliness of a person that has in some sense tasted, has in some sense enjoyed Christian community, that if they then reject it and walk away from it, the likelihood of them returning again is so, so rare. And so Peter concludes that the last state is worse than the first. I think that's the clear teaching of this. I don't think it's very complicated. I think that's what this text is saying. It's, a, it's an admonition. It's a description of what Peter sees in the lives of these false teachers. And it's a warning to us. But here's the dilemma of this text. And it's a dilemma that I said when we began chapter 2 that we would handle at the end of this chapter. Remember in verse 1 of 2 Peter, if you just scan your eyes to the beginning of this chapter, there's this phrase where he starts off on this indictment and this scathing rebuke of these false teachers. He says that false teachers are among you, verse 1, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies 
even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And so here's the, and then he picks up here what we just read in these last three verses where it seems that these people knew the Lord and they have fallen away. And the question, the dilemma of chapter two that I said that we would handle, I sort of skipped it in verse one when we looked at it and said we'd get to it. Well, now we're here where we're getting to this dilemma that I think chapter two presents us is can a true believer, can a true person who's been born again, who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, lose their salvation. Is that possible? Well, if you've been around this church for any length of time, I think that you know what my answer will be. I think the answer to that is no. But we have to do some work to understand what this text is saying. Now, before we dig into that, let me just kind of give you an overview of the historic doctrine believed by Christians through the centuries of the doctrine of, we might call it eternal security, maybe, depending on the the circles of church that you come from, or you might call it the perseverance of the saints, meaning those who are truly born again will persevere to the end, or you might call it, I actually favor this, I think this is a better way to describe it, the preservation of God, that he guarantees that all those that he has made alive will make it all the way home. However you might phrase it, let's think about this this doctrinal truth that Christians through the centuries have believed. So to do that, let me read to you from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And this is a wonderful historic summary of historic Christian doctrine. And this came from out of the English Reformation in the late 1600s by these London Baptists. And they were working with the historic doctrine of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is an excellent document. And let me read to you a little lengthy, but this will help us to understand more than just a pithy phrase like eternal security. Let's think about how Christians have formed this doctrine through the centuries. Listen to this summary. Those God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace, meaning salvation. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Therefore, he still brings about and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit that lead to immortality. Listen to this. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against him, and I add parenthetically, amen, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they are anchored by faith. The felt sight of the light and love of God may be clouded and obscured from them for a time through their unbelief and temptations of Satan, yet God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation, where they will enjoy their purchased possession, for they are engraved on the palm of his hands, and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. Let me read a few, little bit more. This is so good. This perseverance of the saints does not depend on their own free will, but on the unchangeableness of the decree of election which flows from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. It is based on the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace. The certainty and infallibility of their perseverance is based on all these things. In other words, the strength of Christ and his work, not on your strength. Finally, they may fall into grievous sins and continue in them for a time. And I add parenthetically, amen. Due to the temptation of Satan and the world, the strength of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of means of their preservation... In so doing, they incur, in, incur God, in, in, how do you pronounce that word, incur? I struggle with pronunciation sometimes, and the staff makes fun of me. I famously can't pronounce the word Philadelphia. I say Philadelphia. I realize it's not spelled that way. I'm sorry. They incur, they incur 
God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, their graces and comforts become impaired. In other words, yes, we, we have real lives that f- fluctuate in and out of God's pleasure, and their hearts are hardened and their conscience is wounded. They hurt and scandalize others and bring temporary judgments on themselves. Nevertheless, they will renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Now, now that's what these English Puritans came up with at the end of the 1600s, and I think it's true. And I think we should believe it. And I think we're going to have to do some work in just a moment to see how this text that we just read from 2 Peter fits with these truths in this confession. But let's not believe it because... This is a statement of faith by some English leaders of the church in the 1600s. Let's believe it because they're getting it from the Bible. So let's read some passages, and I'm going to read a good number of passages here that I want you to to pay attention to that I think support and clearly articulate this truth that all those who are truly born again will necessarily by God's sovereign grace, make it all the way to heaven. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 6. These are such important passages. Listen as the word of God is read to you. Jesus speaking, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's a certainty there. There's a definitiveness to the work of redemption. The Father's given Jesus a people. They will come to him, and he will never cast them out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, a few chapters later, Jesus speaking again, he says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, those two passages by Jesus are all that I need, but let's keep going. This is what Paul concludes in Ephesians chapter 1, speaking about the utter glory of God and salvation. He concludes in verse 13 of Ephesians 1, In Him, meaning in Christ, when also when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So that language that Paul is using in Ephesians is it's, as, it's this picture when we have a, a real estate transaction and you're putting down earnest money, you are saying that I will come back to the table and I will close on this investment. And here we have the triune God, the Father who has orchestrated salvation, the Son who has accomplished it, and the Spirit who applies it and guarantees it. He has sealed us for that salvation that we will fully possess on that day. And then Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, a famous verse, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, not might, will, bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Peter, in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, not because of anything in us, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, meaning a future heaven, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the faith that God gives you for salvation as a gift is also the gift that works its way out daily to preserve you that he guarantees as he's keeping it for you in heaven. And when you get there, it's not like he's saying, oh, I don't know where it is. He's keeping it for you through the means of the faith that he has given you. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation, not now, not forever, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, this beautiful progression of thought, often called the golden chain, the airtight seal of salvation. Listen and follow with me the logic of Paul in Romans 8, 29 and 30, for those... The those here is Christians, those who are born again, those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreloved is another way of thinking about that word, not just that he knew something about you, but those whom he loved in eternity past. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And listen, look at, look at the logic of verse 30. And those whom he, I'll read it through and then we let me read it again. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So think about it. Those, meaning Christians, those whom he has foreknown and predestined, he's, he's made them alive. Those whom he predestined in eternity past, he determined that he would call them. He also called. He opened their heart to the gospel. So everybody that he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he called, he made alive through the regenerating, life-giving power of the gospel, he also justified. So all of those, not one more and not one less that he called, he also justified. He forgave their sins. He made them not guilty, and he gave them the righteousness of Christ. Not one less and not one more. And those whom he justified, not one more and not one less, every one of them, he also glorified, which is speaking of the future experience of the Christian in heaven, meaning all the way home, getting to heaven. And he's so sure that it's going to happen that he speaks of it in the past tense. So every single person that he's justified through faith in Christ alone, he has also, not maybe, might, if they kind of hang in there and do good stuff, every one of them he has already glorified. And then Romans chapter 6, verse 5, just really, I think, an undervalued doctrine, the doctrine of union with Christ. Listen to Paul's logic here. He says, for if we, if we have been united with him, meaning by faith, and that's his argument in Romans chapter 6 and prior in Romans chapter 5, if we've been united to him by faith, and that faith, we're dead, we don't bring it, God gives it to us, and by faith, we are united, we're joined we're joined with Christ. If we have been united with him in a death like his, meaning his death is for our benefit, in his death our sin is judged and punished. We're united with him in that, so we're in Christ in that sense. The benefits of his death are applied to us. He removes the punishment for us. We've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so Jesus died on the cross to remove the wrath of God that was against all of us. And so by faith, we are placed in Christ and we see on the cross forgiveness is given. And because Jesus rose again from the dead and conquered death, sin, and the grave and the punishment for our sins, we know that in the future... We will be resurrected. We will be finally joined together with God forever on that day when Jesus comes again. And Paul speaks of it not as a maybe, but as a certainty. So just as your sins have been forgiven in the past, and that is certain, your future is secure because you are in Christ. So that, I think, those verses, and we could read many, many, many more. Those verses, in addition to the faithful teaching of people like these English leaders in the 1600s, lead me and thousands and thousands of other Christians through the centuries to believe. 
that a true believer cannot lose their salvation. So then, what's the dilemma? What's going on with this text? It seems to be clear that these people, remember, look again at your text. It says that they escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But now they've gone back, they've turned back, they've fallen away, and they are condemned. So what are we to make of this? How, here's the thing we need to think about this morning. How do we reconcile the clear teaching of a mountain of biblical passages and passages like this, the few passages like this, that seem to indicate that a true believer can indeed lose their salvation? How do we reconcile this mountain of passages with passages like 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20? Well, let's just think about just a kind of a, a good understanding of when we come to tough passages. Let's remember what we learned at the end of chapter 1 in 2 Peter, that the Bible is inspired by God. It's a document that fits together perfectly. Remember in, in verse 21 of 2 Peter chapter 1, it says that men, as they wrote this Bible, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us that the Word of God is breathed out. And so Christians rightly have for centuries concluded that the Bible is a perfect inerrant and infallible book that has a cohesive message that cannot contradict itself. So how do we reconcile what seems to be happening at the end of our passage here and all of these clear passages that teach otherwise? I think what's going on is that Peter is speaking from a perspective of what seems to be the case. These false teachers are in front of these people. They're living lives. And they're claiming to be Christians. And at times, maybe for a long period of time, they appear to be true believers. But because of their eventual rejection of the truth of the gospel, they display, they prove, they identify themselves as never having truly been believers. And I think we see examples of this all throughout the Bible. The Bible gives us examples of people that seem to be Christians, that confess to be Christians for a while, but ultimately show themselves not to have been. And I think Peter is speaking from the perspective here as he's describing these false teachers as what seems to be in their lives, not what actually is. Let me read to you a, a few examples of how the Bible illustrates this truth from us. The parable of the sower, Matthew chapter 13. Let me read this important parable. Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And then skip to verse 18 where Jesus explains this parable. Verse 18 of Matthew 13. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what has been sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. 
As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So what Jesus hears, I think Jesus is describing in parable form what we see Peter describing at the end of 2 Peter 2 about these false teachers. They seemed to be Christians for a while, but they ultimately did not endure. And Jesus, when he gives us the example of these four types of seed, these four types of soil, we see that the first three, the, the evil one comes and snatches, the other deceitfulness, tribulation comes, and we see the fourth soil, the good soil, I believe, is only really indicative of the true Christian. In fact, listen to what Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus, I think, describes by putting a finger on what I think is going on in these other types of soil that are ultimately not truly Christians. He says, in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So it's not that he knew them once and then they lost their salvation, but they were self deceived, and Jesus never knew them. I think that's what's going on at the end of the Bible in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, when John is describing these antichrists, or people that ultimately don't think of, don't think of the, the devil in, in a sort of end-time sense. When, when John is using this word antichrist, he's more often referring to, just, to people who are false teachers, who are against Christ. And listen to John's description of them in 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So piecing together what we see as a huge stack of verses that teach the, 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 the eternal security of all those that God has truly regenerated, with this challenging text, and we realize that the Bible can't contradict itself, I think the right interpretation of this passage is that Peter, in real time, is describing what people that appear to be Christians, but who ultimately display, show, demonstrate that they are not truly born again, which we see in detail described in these passages that I've just read in Matthew and 1 John. Now, I understand that for some of us, this may be a bit unsatisfying because we want the Bible to work like a mathematical equation. We, we want the Bible to fit together like a, like a Rubik's Cube. If we turn it this many times, then it will spit out with you know, uh, uh, the right answer. But that's not the way the Bible works. It's not a mathematical formula or a Rubik's Cube. It is a picture, a display full of truths and warnings that God uses to keep his people in the faith. It's, a, it's an announcement of God's end, and it is an exhortation of means by which he uses to bring about his end. It's not a mathematical formula. And a general principle is that when you come across a challenging passage like this that on the surface may seem to contradict other passages, let the Bible interpret itself. Let the utterly clear verses interpret the less clear verses. So I think that those who are truly born again, and I think this is a clear teaching of Scripture, will endure to the end. But that's not the end of it. We need to apply this. We can't just have a doctrine that doesn't actually do something in our hearts. So let's conclude with looking at two questions to help us apply this doctrine of perseverance. And then we're going to come to the Lord's table and receive communion together. Question number one I want to ask is why, why is this doctrine of perseverance so important? Why is knowing and believing the biblical truth that all those who are truly born again will endure, will persevere, will be preserved by God to the end? Why is that so important? Well, I think first, simply, because of the glory of God. 
I think that's what's at stake in salvation primarily is the glory of God. Jonah says from the belly of a whale in Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord from beginning to middle to end. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 through 31, and because of him, Paul says, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What's on, what's on the line here is the glory of God and salvation. Romans 11 verse 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now some may object and say that God is, is, is glorified in some way when he limits his sovereignty and allows us to walk away from him at the end. Friend, I just do not see that in the Bible. I don't see that perspective in the Bible. I think what that perspective does is it takes away from the pile, the glorious truth of God's sovereignty, and it attempts unwittingly to diminish the glory of God and add to the glory of man. And I think that the Bible is actually going the opposite direction. It speaks to us about the utter certainty of the work of God in redemption. So why is this doctrine so important? Well, because of the glory of God. And secondly, because, and we need to think about this, because God wants his children to have true assurance. He uses these warnings to bring about his guaranteed end so that he might work in us true assurance. And when I say true assurance, I want to contrast that with cheap assurance or false assurance, which, as I've said, false assurance, cheap assurance, is what much of the false teachers in Second Peter's day and in our day False teachers promote a kind of easy believism. Come and be cool. Come and be hip. Come and listen to this functional message to help you be a better person. And just because you're here, we're going to slap a Christian tag on you. That's not the way the Bible works out this doctrine of perseverance. And so we're not saying here just a kind of glib phrase, once saved, always saved, as if you have to raise your hand and say a prayer and sign a baptism certificate or go to VBS and utter some prayer repeating after a leader. And if you've done that, well, then you're good. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible clearly teaches that it is God who regenerates our heart. And when he regenerates our heart, there will necessarily be obedience that follows a truly born again heart. That's the message of James that we spent a few months on in the previous weeks. We will, to some degree, have a life if we're truly born again, follow him, obey him, take God's side against our sin, and we are to find our assurance in his utter sovereignty and guarantee and the reality that we see in our lives that is the fruit of that sovereign grace. That's why Peter says in our text, go back to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, he tells us that we should be diligent to make our calling and election sure. Notice the logic of Peter. He doesn't say, you know what? All those that are saved, if you're a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, then that's it. You're on easy street now. Watch Sports Center and eat Cheetos. No, that's not the logic of the Bible. The logic of the Bible is because you're trusting in Jesus, let that produce in you a diligence. That's why he says in verse 5, 2 Peter chapter 1, for this reason, because of all this that Jesus has done, make every effort. And then in verse 10, he says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, you will never fall. So do you see this tension that God wants to produce assurance in his people? It's a real assurance. It's an assurance that bears fruit. It's an assurance that we can touch and see and know. And it's an assurance that endures to the end. Let's go back to the London Baptist Confession of Faith and read what they have to say about assurance. I love this passage. It's this, this, this chapter of this confession. 
Listen to what they say. This infallible insurance is not such an essential part of faith that it is always fully, fully experienced alongside faith. In other words, our assurance waxes and wanes. It comes and goes like the tide sometimes. But true believers may wait for a long time and struggle with many difficulties before obtaining it. And again, I add parenthetically, amen, amen, and amen. Can you say amen? In other words, man, life is hard, yo. Come on. Yet, with the enabling of the Spirit to know the things freely given to them by God, they may attain this assurance, listen to this, using ordinary means appropriately without any extraordinary revelation. In other words, God just calls us to read the word, pray, be together in fellowship, do the hard and unspectacular, sometimes frustrating and often boring means of living together in community. And he doesn't just drop snowflakes from the sky in July. He uses these ordinary means to work out, to prove, to stabilize, to plant Christians and bear fruit, thereby increasing their assurance. In other words, the Christian life is hard work. Therefore, it is the duty of all to be as diligent as possible to make their calling and election sure. In this way, their hearts may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and love and thankfulness to God in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. These effects are the natural fruits of his assurance. Thus, it does not at all encourage believers to be negligent. So do you see that logic that I think is biblical? He wants to increase our assurance. So then, second question as we end, are the warnings and exhortations to preserve, persevere proof that believers can lose their salvation? So if the Bible's full of warnings that says, if you don't do this, you will surely fall away, is this proof, does this undermine the doctrine of perseverance? Is, are these warnings and exhortations, even in a sense, this instance we see here at the end of 2 Peter, does this undermine somehow the doctrine of eternal security? And I would say no. But let me read to you some examples. For example, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus is clearly saying that, that, that there's a condition here. You have to abide in his word if you're truly his disciple. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. He says, And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, past tense, in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he's saying, If you do this, then this is true in your life. And then listen to Hebrews chapter 3, and Hebrews is full of warning passages. Listen to verse 12 and following. Take care, brothers. This is a warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be any, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If Indeed, we hold our original conference, confidence firm to the end. So do you see these conditional statements here? What's going on? What's happening here? Are these warnings proof that the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is undermined? Is it proof that we can actually lose our salvation? The answer to that, I think, is no. They are part of you have to see this. These, because this doctrine has to land in your life. It has to mean something. So these verses, these warnings, these real warnings are part of God's means by which he uses to bring about his guaranteed end. Listen to what Tom Schreiner and another uh, Dr. Kennedy says about this in a helpful book on perseverance and endurance. They said, God designed the exhortations of his gospel to secure the obedience of faith, not to imply possible failure of faith. Listen to this. Admonition is necessary 
For the gospel is the message by which God calls us to himself, giving us faith and sustaining us until we draw our last breath. Listen to this last sentence. The gospel exhorts us all along the way on the basis of its announcement of God's redemption in Christ. So in other words, the gospel's not just this truth about how you can be forgiven of your sins. Yes, it's that, but it's also this truth that exhorts you all along the way after you've been born again. So the gospel is not just for your one-time salvation, but for your continual sanctification, guaranteeing your ultimate glorification. Listen to Jude's logic at the end of the New Testament, right before Revelation, Jude says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So in other words, you do it, stay, come on, fight, be diligent. And now verse 24 and 25, a focus on the preserving power of God. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. In other words, because God is guaranteed that he will keep you from stumbling, therefore build yourselves up and don't stumble. I listened to it. I heard. I was in, I was in the room with the other pastors and a few from this church uh, five or six or seven years ago when John Piper preached this sermon on this text. And he said, God preserves us. I love this line. He says, God preserves us by enabling us to do self-preserving things. And I think that's what's going on in Jude. Here's an illustration before we conclude. This is like a father holding his child, teaching them to swim. Now, when you teach a child to swim or you teach a Christian to live, you don't just let them sink. You don't just say you're on your own. The father is teaching this child how to swim. And he's holding on to him. And he doesn't just say, I'm going to pull you around this pool and I'll be with you every time you're swimming. No, he tells him to kick and to use his arms and to keep his head above water. In the same way, of course, no analogy is perfect, but God, as he's using these warnings in Scripture, saying to his people that he guarantees every one of them will get all the way home, and the way that I am going to ensure that they get all the way home is by telling them, as I'm holding their hands in the pool, to kick. That's what's going on in this text. That's what's going on in the tension of these truths. God does not just wave a magic wand and say, you are finished, you're complete, you're in the fold. He works out his guaranteed end through the means of his exhortations that shepherd us all the way along, as Schreiner said, to the guaranteed end. Friends, that's why, man, that's why Living together in community with a bunch of other Christians who are struggling with this too is so important. Assurance and perseverance is a community project. And we all have to help each other do this. That's why committing yourself to a church and not jumping around from church to church because you get angry at this little silly thing or that little silly thing is so bad for your soul when you do that. And this town is full of people who bounce around from church to church because they just, like the blowing wind, they just want something to, you know, this is better. They got better worship over here. This guy's a, look, I know I'm an average preacher, but guess what? You're an average Christian. And so maybe God in his kindness has put us together to not be examples of awesomeness, but to be examples of his grace. So what's the conclusion? Don't, don't turn back. Don't, don't turn back. Don't turn back. 
If you turn back, you will prove that you were never really part of his fold. But right now, heaven and hell hangs in the balance for some of us. They're being perplexed. They're being, they're being, they're being tossed to and fro. And the word of God for you, the preserving word of God for you, the necessary preserving word of God for you, dear one, is don't turn back. And the same gospel, the same Jesus who died on the cross to save you from your sins rose again and gave you his spirit so that you might live in victory over your remaining sin. That's what Paul says when he says in Colossians 2, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the truth just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. So as we come to this table, as we think about this doctrine of perseverance, as we scratch our heads at the end of 2 Peter and say, what's going on? I think we should take it as a very real warning that we must persevere. There is no easy street for the Christian. We must fight in a God-glorifying way for our assurance. And here's the kindness of God. When we do that, he uses our fight for assurance, which is called sanctification, to be the means by which he uses to bring about the salvation of other people. And so we must fight for our salvation. As we come to this communion table, as believers in Jesus, as the church families, we come to this cup, as we come to this bread that represents Jesus' body broken for us, that secured this salvation once and for all. And as we come to this cup and we drink this cup that speaks about this new covenant that we now live by grace, just as we come to him for salvation, knowing that he's forgiven us of our sins, we come to him for our daily bread, for sustenance, to keep trusting in him, to keep in the faith, to build ourselves up in the holy, beloved faith, knowing that it's God who keeps us. So let's do that. If you're a believer in Jesus and you believe this gospel, you're welcome to come to this table. But if you're not yet trusting in Jesus, in just a moment when most of the people around you get up to come to this table, I ask that you not come to the table and take these elements because I don't want you, I don't want you unwittingly to just, because of this is what's happening in the moment, for you to confess something that you don't truly believe. But if you're trusting in Jesus, and this is what communion is saying, that we are feasting on the gospel. We believe that his broken body and spilled blood forgave us of our sins. And we are now feasting again and again, monthly as a congregation, as often as we gather, remembering that he is our sustenance. That's what we're saying. And you should only say that if you believe it. Let me pray. Father, help us now as we come to this table. Make this doctrine real in our lives. For somebody that's being tossed to and fro for somebody that's being torn, for somebody whose old nature is raising up, who is perplexing them, who's troubling them, whose temptations from Satan in their own flesh are causing them to doubt. Lord, use this passage, these words, these things that we've read today to bring them back so that they would not turn back, to keep them in your faith. Lord, for those of us that are feeling firm and strong. May this truth humble us. May we remember afresh that we need Christ daily as we come to feast on him now. In Jesus' name.